Um, I'm going to be talking about um, writing for new audiences, as you know, uh, and I'm going to look at various schools of thought as we go along relating to creative writing as an academic discipline, uh, and also copywriting, advertising copywriting, uh, drawing on my own sort of experiences and sort of anecdotal um, experience of, of working in the advertising industry, and also screenwriting, sort of visual writing as well, and how all of these areas and little sort of certain key issues related to these subjects can inform the way that we interact and communicate with new audiences. So mainly what I'm going to be talking about is going to be related to us as academics working within the humanities um, and how we write about ourselves um, and how we communicate with those that we need to communicate with and how sometimes we need to sort of think I'm going to use a really awful corny expression now, outside the box, um, in terms of our academic discipline and how we need to um, sometimes sort of simplify how we write in terms of its presentation in order to achieve a new audience rather than just, you know, broadcasting, if you like, to the same sort of target demographic. Firstly, I'd like to give you a little background regarding me and my career because much of what I'm going to be talking about over the next hour or so um, is going to be anecdotal, drawing on my own sort of personal experiences of communication uh, across a variety of different sort of areas. Uh, my name's Max Kinnings. Uh, I'm a novelist, screenwriter, and I'm also head of subject in creative writing at Brunel University. I started off my post-school career uh, at the University of Westminster, or the Central London Polytechnic, as it was known in those days. Um, and I studied criminology and social science. Uh, and I've always been very drawn, because of my experiences of, of studying criminology, I've always been very drawn to sort of deviant behaviour, aberrant behaviour, true crime, crime fiction. Uh, why do certain people do what they do, certain extremities of human nature? Don't worry, I'm perfectly safe perfectly harmless, uh, but I've always been drawn to this sort of deviant behaviour and it's something that has informed my work as a writer uh, and a thriller writer at the moment, although I do write in other different sort of areas. Um, having studied criminology and criminals, uh, it seemed like an obvious move to go into the music industry when I left um, <laughs> university and uh, I worked in advertising in arts advertising, in entertainment advertising for many years. I was director of an advertising agency known as Sold Out. Uh, and what we did, we advertised festivals such as Glastonbury and Reading and Phoenix and various big music festivals and also a lot of uh, concerts and tours and comedians and comedy producers. And then later on I started moving over into marketing for theatre productions. I did some marketing for the RSC, uh, Sadler's Wells. Uh, amongst other sort of, you know, fairly big name <coughs> arts companies. And I guess all of this time I was finding audiences. I was locating audiences, sussing out what those audiences were consuming as far as uh, in terms of the media. Um, and on behalf of my clients, I was finding those audiences, finding the most effective way of communicating to them in as compelling a way as possible and literally selling them tickets you know, bums on seats. It's, it, it was, um, in a way, it can be a very uh, sort of dry subject area, media buying and media planning. Um, but it can also be very fascinating, trying to work out who these people are who are going to formulate the audiences for certain projects. But throughout all of this, all this time in advertising, when I was working with these various different audiences and, and, and working out how to you know, reach them through the, the necessary media and the necessary media plans. Uh, I knew that I wanted to write. I'd always, you know, had a hankering to write fiction. Ever since I'd studied criminology, I'd always been very interested in crime fiction. And I always had this hankering. And it was something that, you know, I realised there was going to come a point when I needed to make the jump. I needed to make the jump from advertising uh, into a, a new form of communication. And that was writing fiction. So I started off uh, I, at about the sort of turn of the century. I had my first novel was published by Hodder and Stoughton, uh, and it was a comedy thriller, and it did okay. Critically, it was it was well received, 
But I learned a lesson from that in that it was a comedy thriller. It was two separate things. It was aimed at two separate audiences. And as my editor was only too pleased to sort of, well, he wasn't pleased, but he, he took great relish in telling me uh, when it didn't quite sell as well as we'd hoped, was that it had fallen between two stools. It, had, it hadn't been as, uh, as much of a sort of genre piece as the crime audience wanted, and it hadn't been as much of a comedy piece as the comedy audience wanted. And I think, you know, therein is an important lesson, is that often if you mix a message in your work, that sometimes you'll confuse people and it will literally sort of fall between two stools. But it was around about, about sort of five or six years ago that a friend of mine said, you know, uh, who, was, who was lecturing at Brunel University, she said, why don't you come along and, and do some lectures for us about genre writing, about writing horror and about writing thrillers uh, and about writing crime. And I went along there and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the process uh, and I really enjoyed um, working with writers. Uh, and working with them to find out, you know, to bring out the stories that they wanted to tell um, and find the audiences and the readers that they wanted to find. And so I, over a period of two or three years, I ended up working full-time at Brunel University. And again, I, I, I entered into a, a whole new kind of phase of life, if you like. And suddenly I was known as a, an academic, you know, which was kind of strange because I'd never really thought of myself as an academic, you know, working in the advertising industry. Uh, you know, this was a bit of a leap. Um, and it was an unusual experience, especially at Brunel, because Brunel is traditionally a science and technology university. And I was an arts academic within this environment. And the arts academics at Brunel were sort of not second-class citizens, that's overstating it, but although some would claim that, but um, you did feel that you, were, you really had to fight your corner in terms of what you were doing, in terms of your research. And this whole concept of research was a very kind of alien thing for me because I just see myself as a writer. You know, I wrote scripts, um, adaptations of my books, I wrote, you know, short stories. Basically, I wrote fiction. And suddenly, this was being called research. This was practical research. This was my research output. And so began a process of trying to sort of get to grips with the whole language of academia and realizing that the, what I did, my practice as a writer, was considered to be practical research. And I must admit I struggled. I struggled with the, this language of academia which seemed really kind of quite arcane uh, and verbose and uh, I, I did struggle with it because especially when we were, uh, we were trying to get a, a screenwriting module off the ground, a screenwriting undergraduate program off the ground and um, we had to uh, basically justify this program in terms of the documentation that would go before the Senate at the, at the university and um, this document was about 25 pages long and what was actually contained within it could have been written in about one page. And I was told, well, why don't we just write it in one page? Oh, no, no, you couldn't do that. It had to be presented in this specific language, in this specific terminology. And it kind of drove me mad a little bit, the idea of this. And it put me in mind of this guy, William Burroughs, who was a great sort of hero of mine, um, uh, you know, totally kind of personified the weirder fringes of the uh, counterculture and popular culture in the 1960s. An incredibly sort of seminal character in the way that popular culture has developed over the years. And one of his sort of great hypotheses was the idea that the word is a virus, okay? And over the history of humanity, this virus has self-perpetuated, as viruses do, and had got to a point where it was beginning to sort of mutate uh, beginning to evolve into different areas. As he said, modern man has lost the option of silence. Try halting sub-vocal speech. Try to achieve even 10 seconds of inner silence. You will encounter a resisting organism that forces you to talk. That organism is the word. And it kind of felt to me as though academia was particularly uh, affected by this virus. And as much as a lot of the stuff that William Burroughs in his books uh, and the various writings that he made is particularly over the top and kind of insane in many respects, um, this has always stayed with me. And I do think you know, that, that if there's anything that we can kind of um, 
take away from today, uh, it is, you know, the importance of being succinct uh, and, you know, really cutting through this, this seemingly kind of knee-jerk reaction that academia has to try and, you know, use a lot of words when just very few would probably be a lot more effective. So, um, and I think it, particularly in, in terms of creative writing where, and fiction writing, where you're looking to create a story. Uh, if we think of stories as one of the oldest forms of communication that there are, stories and myth um, has grown up you know, from prehistory, from primeval man. Um, scary stories were used as a control mechanism in much the same way as religion was used to try and possibly frighten people into behaving. Children were told not to wander too far from the campfire be, but because they were told that if they didn't, you know, the bogeyman would get them. You know, there'd be some monster out there, some creature that might attack them. And so, you know, stories are, uh, and myth are really playing on, our sort of, uh, on a primeval level. And we do feel a compulsion to use words. We do feel a compulsion to express ourselves. Uh, and it, but it just seems to me that sometimes in the world of academia, we overdo it and we fall into this, you know, William Burroughs' thoughts that, that, you know, the word is now a virus. You know, who knows? So what I wanted to start off looking at is um, the nature of audiences and who are the audiences for us as humanities, academics and practitioners. Um, one of the most fundamental uh, components of creative writing, before you start writing anything, you need to suss out who you're writing for. You need to suss out your readership and suss out your audience. What are their expectations? And nowhere is this more important than in the concept of genre. All writing, and film and the whole world of entertainments, is based on the nature of genre. If you're going to write a murder mystery, for example, you need a murder. Okay, you might think, well, that is a convention, and I want to break that convention, and I want to do something different, and that's great. And that is when you know, writing comes alive, and it, and it evolves, and it does something different. You need to know what those conventions are within a specific genre in a romance. You need to have the meet-cute, as it's known. You need to have the protagonist meeting for the first time. Or you might think, well, that's a convention. Okay, I don't want that. I don't want them to ever meet you know, my two protagonists. So that's fine. So you're breaking that convention. But at least you know what that convention is. And so much of these genre conventions are based on the expectations of your audience and your readership. So creative writing is absolutely focused on the nature of your audience. So we're going to look at who are the audiences that we are going to sort of aim our research at. First of all, students. For example, at Brunel, you know, I, I lecture a lot on the undergraduate program, so I need to be able to uh, express my research and the nature of what I do to my students, and also to prospective students, to those you know, uh, who, who are hoping to study creative writing at Brunel. So there are various different ways that I might pitch what I do and what the department does and what the university does to a variety of different students. There will also be collaborators, particularly in the world of screenwriting uh, and the world of filmmaking, which I'm involved in. That is uniquely collaborative. It's not like you know, writing a novel where you're possibly only collaborating vaguely with an editor before it's actually sort of cast out into the world. In filmmaking, and writing for the web and digital games. Um, we write very much in a collaborative environment. And as academics, we write and work very much in a collaborative environment. So that is another audience that we have to consider. We also need to consider sources of funding, funding bodies. So they're another audience that we need to consider in terms of our writing and our communication and our forms of expression. <coughs> Our academic peer group are another audience, both within the institutions in which we work and external to those institutions. We need to be able to sort of focus on this, these various different groupings that we may want to collaborate with, and we need to suss out how best to approach them and how best to communicate ourselves and our ideas to them. 
In terms of practical research, I'm a novelist. I need to think about the writer who's going to walk into Waterstones or WH Smith's or go onto Amazon and think of, you know, they want to read a crime novel or whatever. So that is my practical research audience. Those are the end users for what I do. So you need to consider in terms of your own disciplines, who are those end users? If you're working on a theatre project or a drama project, um, you know, who are the audiences for that? How are you best are you going to reach those? How are you going to, in a way, sell yourself and sell your research to those people? And then, of course, the media, the academic media. So the terms of language that we may use in terms of a journal that is very specific to our own discipline, we can be a lot more complex in, in the way we express ourselves than, say, if you, there was a sidebar in a very general magazine a general sort of entertainment magazine, or in the popular press, or on television, radio, the way you might express yourself if you were on, say, BBC Oxford Radio in a general kind of daytime interview about something, might be very different from how you express yourself on a specialist Radio 4 programme, for example. Um, so we need to think of the audiences within the media, and also the new media, obviously, because these, all of the old media have now been you know, absorbed into the new media. So we need to think of how best to express ourselves to those people as well. So it's that important nature of, of ascertaining exactly who the audience is. And so often I notice, both with my students and with fellow academics at Brunel, they haven't researched the audience that they're aiming their work at sufficiently. And they get it wrong because they haven't sussed out what you know, what is expected of them. It's that sense of expectation from an audience that you need to, you need to, you know, understand. I was thinking, what other audiences might there be? I don't know if anybody can think of any other audiences that we, we as academics, in terms of our research, we might need to approach. Can anybody think of any other audiences? Parents. Sorry? Very good point. Uh, that's, not, that's one that I hadn't thought of. That's a very good point. Again, they could obviously go with sources of funding, possibly. <laughs> Fun funding bodies. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Parents could be very important. Um, you know, we need to justify ourselves to them. Uh, it may be employers, I guess. I guess you could look upon those as sort of academic peer group in a way. Um, but I've, I've sat in on a few interviews um, with other arts academics at Brunel and we, the, the School of Arts covers a number of different disciplines. And uh, we have creative writing, we have drama, we have journalism, uh, we have um, digital games. And uh, often it's, it's interesting to see how when these academics who are coming for a job are presenting their research, uh, they haven't really done their homework. They haven't sussed out the, the interview panel and who they are. And they pitch their research at a far too high technical level and it just goes completely over their head and you know it sounds good possibly but they've they haven't sussed out the audience sufficiently um, and you know a lot of what they're saying they may be brilliant at what they're saying but they haven't pitched it in the correct way so what I want to do now is look at audience accessibility and what we can learn from advertising we're then going to look on what we learned from screenwriting as well because I think both of these are very important considerations. So first of all, what can we learn from advertising that we can use in how we present ourselves to the readership and an audience for our research? So advertising is very much predicated on the concept of the unique selling proposition. This is something that was discussed in America in the 19, I think at first people started talking about the USP in about the 1940s when advertising sort of post-war really exploded and really took off, um, as we can see in the great uh, TV drama Mad Men. Um, and the idea of the unique selling proposition, what is it about a product or a service that is unique, that makes it different, that makes you as a potential consumer, choose that object or product or service over any other. Okay? And I think it's very useful to take that concept and use that concept in terms of what we do. So think in terms of your research. What makes your research unique? What makes it different? What makes it, you know, 
set apart from those possibly of your peer group. What else? Branding. Branding is something that, you know, we've, we've, it, it is something of a dirty word um, because people don't like to think of themselves as a brand. It seems, it feels a bit sort of corny to talk about branding in terms of individuals. But actually, you know, it's an important thing to understand. What is your personal brand? Do you have a personal brand? Is there some th way that you present yourself or the work that you do that you can use as a means of communication to set yourself apart from others, to give yourself a sort of unique selling proposition? Quotes are often very useful. Obviously, as a writer, quotes are absolutely essential to me. Uh, that's why in the publishing industry you get two different versions of a book published. They'll publish a hardback or a trade paperback at a higher price normally, and those will go, those will go out as review copies to the arts editors. And they will hopefully, and it's getting increasingly difficult because arts pages are being shrunk more and more as time goes on. They're considered a sort of expensive luxury uh, in the national press. But hopefully you'll get people will review your work and they will hopefully will say nice things about your work. And when they've said those nice things about your work, they, you can then use those quotes. And then when they bring out the paperback, they you know, will, will plaster those quotes all over it. The same with theatre. When I used to work in theatre, the re there's a reason why the press night of theatre shows is a Tuesday night. That's because they can then make the copy deadline for the Sunday papers, um, make the copy deadline for the Friday papers. Uh, so they always have press nights early on in the week. Uh, and we'd pick the press quotes from the following day's newspapers, plaster them all over the advert for the show, whatever it might be, and they would then appear on the Sunday. Uh, obviously, it's an incredibly thankless task. I've been in various meetings where you've put a new show on in the West End and the critics have absolutely panned it. And you're sitting there in your meeting room the following morning with a stack of newspapers and you're trying to find something nice to say. Uh, and it is absolutely horrendous. Uh, but it's, it's, it's wonderful when you've got a kind of embarrassment of riches and, and suddenly everybody loves a show. I remember I, I worked on Mamma Mia, the musical, when it first launched at the Prince Edward Theatre in, I think, 1999. And everybody's saying, oh, it's incredibly corny, ABBA. Nobody wants to see ABBA. The whole ABBA revival's all over. It's done and dusted. Nobody's interested. It's just a jukebox musical. It's popcorn. It's fluff. It's nonsense. And all the critics, even the really serious national press critics, just went mad for it. And it was just a wonderful thing. We were literally just picking and choosing these perfect quotes uh, and plastering them all over the ads. And it sort of sold out for like 12 months in advance. So quotes can be very useful. And quotes, if somebody, you know, don't feel afraid to actually go to somebody who you work with, possibly a colleague or, you know, some luminary within your field uh, who you've worked with or had some contact with, and maybe, you know, find a quote. If somebody can say something you know, that, is, that really sums up what you do uh, and says it in a very succinct and a very sort of complimentary way, use it. You know, don't let those sort of opportunities go by. And think of the pack shot. In advertising, it's absolutely crucial that you have a pack shot. Uh, again, for me, if, it's, if I'm working on a film, it's just it's the film poster or it's the book, um, the book cover, you know. So, but, but what is it about what you do and, and your research? Is there anything that you can use visually? Because something we're going to talk about a little bit later on is how we are moving away from words into visual representation now, particularly in the digital realm. Um, and so if there's any way that you can think of an image of what you do that, that sort of sums up um, your research, then use it because it, you'll find it'll be very, very useful. You know, um, an image is worth a thousand words or whatever the, the expression is. So those are just a few sort of key thoughts that you might uh, want to think about in terms of advertising. Now we're going to look at what we can learn from screenwriting. Now, screenwriting as a discipline seems to be something that is usually arrived at, uh, certainly in my experience, um, through w considering other subject areas. Now, in creative writing, most of the students that I come across when they first come to Brunel as undergraduates or master's students, um, they 
99 times out of 100, they want to be novelists, or they want to be poets, or they want to write short stories. Um, and suddenly they're told, okay, or you know, they're offered the opportunity to do some screenwriting. And this, some of them find very, very tricky, because obviously when you're writing fiction, a lot of it is internal thoughts, internal psychology, internal monologues and dialogues. And it's very difficult to express visually, because all a screenplay is, is just a blueprint for what we see up on the screen. There's a reason why screenplays are formatted in a certain way, is because each page of script should correspond with exactly one minute of screen time. It doesn't always. But that's how it's meant to be. It's literally a blueprint of what we see on the screen. So there's no opportunity for verbosity. There's no opportunity for lovely pieces of purple prose, great descriptive pieces. Because you need to be succinct. You need to describe what is, what is taking place in real time. A 120-page script is a two-hour movie. And it needs to move along at exactly that pace. Okay. So we can learn a lot from that sort of visual, succinct nature of screenwriting. It's the idea of show, don't tell, visual storytelling. Always, if you can show something in a script or dramatically, it's always far more effective than just telling someone about it. It becomes far more immediate. And as we, in the second half, when we talk about a little bit more about the, the sort of use of video and how we as, as academics and researchers can use video to tell our own personal stories, this will become more relevant. Screenwriting is very much focused on the story, the character and the plot. And I put it in them that way round. Character and plot. Now, there's a huge debate that's always been raging in creative writing and fiction writing, writing generally from time immemorial, is you know, what comes first, character or plot? I come very much from the school of thought that character is the most important. When you think of a great book, great story, great film, great piece of drama, the chances are that it's the character that you are reacting to. You are buying into that character. You are gaining an understanding of that character. And it's the character that you relate to, rather than what the character does which is the plot. Now, obviously, the plot is incredibly important. But if you don't have the character, the plot's not really going to work a lot. It's not, you know, the, the plot's not really going to do much if the character is unsympathetic, uninteresting, flat, one-dimensional. You're not really going to care what happens to that character. So the plot is almost immaterial. And I think we can really think about that in terms of what we do, uh, is that us as characters are really, really important. You might think that your research is actually the most important thing about what you do uh, and that whatever project that you might be working on at any given time, that's the absolute key to your working practice. But I would argue that you as a character are what people are going to initially respond to. Okay? They need to buy into you first as a person and find an interest in what you do uh, and an interest in you before you then tell them the plot, if you like, which is the actual sort of research. So think about that. I think character is absolutely crucial. And what we do in screenwriting um, is that we write character biographies. And we write the character biographies before we start thinking about the plot, because the plot will grow out of the character. You know, if you, if you give a character a fundamental flaw, a fundamental problem, then suddenly a plot will become obvious to you. My latest novel, the thriller, um, is about a tube driver and a tube train driver. And this tube train driver suffers from claustrophobia. Crazy. <laughs> so he's a tube train driver. He suffers from claustrophobia. Immediately, you've got a plot. Immediately, your story shows itself. Because then, he, he's fine as long as he's moving. So when he's driving his train, he's fine. Moving through the tunnels, moving, he's fine. If he stops, he's not fine, right? So immediately, there's the plot. He, we know then, as, as you know, sort of analysts of writing, that, that if you show somebody as having a certain character trait, then you're going to throw something in their way. It's all about problems. It's all about people solving problems. There's so much of characterization in fiction and drama is that you create a character and then you throw obstacles in their path and you, you let that person overcome those obstacles. And there's something in us, there's something in our 
human psychology that relates back to you know, prehistory and myth, as I was talking about before, which we love to see people overcome problems and obstacles to, to be victorious and, and to win through. We love it. We absolutely love it. That's why we love happy endings. Um, and you know, it, that's worth bearing in mind. What, in your work, have you had to overcome? What are the problems that you've faced in your research, uh, in your academic practice? What have you actually had to overcome? Because in recounting what you've had to overcome, people are going to respond to that. And they're going to, want to, in they're going to enjoy hearing the nature of the solution that you've come up with to overcome certain key problems and issues in your life. Okay? It's just one of those things that we, you know, that is almost sort of programmed into us, in, into our human psychology. So the other nature of script development is that we start off very, very small. We start off with a simple premise, a simple idea, a simple character idea, and we grow it sort of organically in longer and longer outlines and forms. You never sit down and start writing a screenplay right from the word go even though there are exceptions to that, like Quentin Tarantino, who did just that. But, you know, he's an exception. Um, generally, script development uh, is a lengthy process, and it starts off with the initial premise and the initial idea, and then you, you grow it into a, 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 like a one-page treatment, a one-page outline. Then you grow it into a longer outline. You write your character biographies. You break it down into act structures. You work out where your plot reversals are, your plot points, your turning points, and all these sort of expressions which you don't really need to understand at this stage. But just the process of starting off small and then writing and letting that writing grow organically is absolutely crucial to the nature of screenwriting. And actually, people who've studied screenwriting, who have no intention of ever being screenwriters, who want to be novelists or poets or whatever, find it very valuable to go through this script development process of actually starting off with what is known as uh, a log line. We'll talk about that in a moment. There's another expression which is rather unfortunate, kill your babies. This is a, this is a, a screenwriting expression, a film industry expression, in that, uh, and, and also in creative writing generally, the idea that you have written some beautiful line of prose, something that you, is really close to your heart, that you think is wonderful, and you get so wedded to it that you can't see beyond it. You become almost trapped by it. And what you must do is cut it. Kill your babies. Because often it's that's what's standing in the way of the clarity of communication that you actually need to achieve. So don't be afraid to you know, isolate what you think is the absolute sort of perfect piece of writing within whatever project it is. Um, and then sometimes actually think, well, what would happen if I took that piece out? Because that's, people never do that. They always think they're going to want to take out the, the, the writing that they consider to be the poor writing. But actually, often, it's very useful to think, if I took out the best piece of writing, what would happen? And sometimes you think, actually, it's going to be rubbish, because that's the best bit of writing, and it needs to be in there, and fair enough. But it's really useful, from an editorial point of view, in terms of your writing, to actually think, what would happen if you did kill your babies? Okay? So, next up, the log line. The nature of all the film industry and entertainment industry, the log line. It's the what is it line, you know, the one line, the tag line, very similar to the line that you might use as a sort of slogan in advertising. It's the line that you see on the movie poster. It's the opening line, possibly, of the back cover of a paperback. It's the line that, act, that sets up who the central character is, what is their problem. It doesn't probably give any more than that, because the solution of that problem will be the nature of the story. But it's setting up that problem, the premise. Okay, so is there something in terms of what you do that you can write it in one line? Can you write it down in one line? A lot of people say, well, it's completely impossible. What I, write, what I do is so complicated uh, and sophisticated that it, there's no way I could ever do that. But actually, if you really make a point of pushing yourself, the chances are you may find the very essence of what you do. Okay, and growing out of the log line is the idea of the pitch. And again, this is something uh, that is universal throughout the entertainment industry. And there's nothing more daunting than when you go to one of these sort of networking events with film producers and film directors. And I, I'm never very good at networking. I always find it, you know, I have to force myself. Because I, the idea of walking into a room with a load of people standing around with 
glasses of warm wine, you know, and uh, nobody really knowing each other. And then, you know, you, you suddenly manage to get to speak to the guy that you've wanted to speak to, you know, for, for years. And here's your moment, here's your chance. You've got to pitch to them your film idea. You know, and all the saliva's gone out of your mouth and you're, you're sort of stumbling around and floundering. And, you, you know, it sounded great when you were talking it into the mirror, you know, half an hour before. Um, you know, and, and the pitch, you know, it's a scary moment for all of us. But I think that it's something that for whatever we do, whatever project we work on, I sort of do it without even thinking nowadays. When I'm working on a new storyline or a new project, I think in terms of how I might express that in just a few lines. There's an initiative that the, um, uh, the Film Council, the now defunct Film Council before it became part of the BFI, um, they used to have an initiative called 25 Words or Less. And you had to be able to pitch your film idea in 25 Words or Less. Uh, and it was a really, really useful discipline. Uh, and there are various other projects. There's, there's, a, there's an event that takes place in London uh, quite often, a couple of times a year, called Live Ammunition, which is a room full of people, um, normally screenwriters or sort of people working in the entertainment industry, writers normally, and they pitch to an industry panel and they're given a minute to pitch their idea and they literally will bang a gong after those 60 seconds are up. Um, and you've got to be able to get across the, the absolute essence and the compelling nature of your story in that very, very short period of time. And, you know, it's a very, very useful um, skill to have to be able to pitch uh, and something that I think you know, we should all consider. So what I would like to do now um, is to get you writing just for a little while um, and actually sort of come up. We're going to have a little sort of pitching workshop. I want it to be 100 words maximum, okay? So don't go over 100 words. It can be a lot less than 100 words. Could be 50 words, 40 words, whatever you want it to be. But it needs to basically present you or your research in as succinct manner as possible. So what you need to think about, and I've written this in sort of screenwriting terminology, but story beats. When you're writing a pitch or thinking of a pitch for a film, you need to think about what is the, the, the sort of essence of the story. There's a great it's a wonderful story of Ridley Scott when he went to, he'd done his Hovis commercials back in the 70s and he'd got his big break in Hollywood. And he went over to meet various executives with Alien, which was his breakthrough film. And they said to him, okay, so what have you got? And his great pitch, as this has sort of become legendary in the film industry, is apparently he sat there and he just said, it's Jaws in space. And that was it. And they went, great, brilliant, okay. And he'd sort of, uh, you know, and, and they'd got it, you know. And there was the other great pitch for the film was, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. You know, fantastic, really kind of atmospheric and compelling sort of story idea. Um, so think of what, you know, and, and OK, we're not writing Hollywood blockbuster movies. Obviously, we're, we're working in academia. We're working in various different sort of areas of the humanities. But think of, you know, something within what you do that is, that is a sort of compelling story beat. Think of the priorities of what you do. What's the most important aspect of what you do? You've, you've got 100 words maximum, possibly a lot less. So prioritise. Think of what's important. What pe are people going to respond to? Are you going to write it in the first or the third person? This is a big question. Are you going to give it that personal touch of, you know, I do this, I do that? Or are you going to sort of step back? A lot of people feel very squeamish when they first start writing, in, of writing about themselves in the third person, because often it's a really unpleasant character trait when certain characters we come across in life talk about themselves in the third person. You know, but in terms of ourselves and our work and our research, you know, it's often it's better to present yourself in the third person. If you're thinking of an opening paragraph to a website or a blog that you're writing, then sometimes it, it's useful to write about yourself in the third person. Think of your audience. Now, your audience today, obviously, we are uh, at a, a, a digital humanities summer school. However, we come from various different disciplines, um, and we need to consider the level of understanding that people may have of what we do. Um, so you may want to think about your use of acronyms. It's something that I notice all the time when I sit in meetings with academics is they'll come out with acronyms. I haven't got a clue what those acronyms mean, but you feel like you should know what they mean. You know, they talk about them as though, you know, it's totally obvious and you don't want to stick your hand up and go, oh, what's that? 
what's that mean? So think about those acronyms that you might normally, you know, if you're talking to a colleague, you would, you would just automatically just pepper your, 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 your speech or your writing with those acronyms. So think about those acronyms. Think about the level of understanding, okay? And once you've written these hundred words, we'll, we'll quickly go around and we, you can just deliver your, your pitch about what you do. So delivery, think about the delivery. Do you want it to be you know, very, very serious? Do you want there to be an element of amusement to it? Very, very dangerous, obviously. Um, so think about that delivery. Do you just want it to be very dry? Often, if you're inexperienced at pitching or presenting yourself, then it's better to go for the dry delivery rather than going for a tone of voice that might be misconstrued because you've only got a few lines. So just by way of, you know, getting the whole thing rolling, I thought, uh, last night I thought, well, I'll, you know, it's not fair to ask everybody to do this, you know, pitch about themselves and what they do. Uh, you know, I'll do one for me. So this, as a, a, as a writer to a general audience, but also a slightly academic audience, I guess, because of the nature of the environment we're in at the moment, this is what I came up with for me. Max Kinnings is the author of four novels, Hitman, The Fixer, Baptism, and The Forthcoming Sacrifice. He also writes for the screen and has a number of screenplays in development. As head of subject in creative writing at Brunel University, he teaches creative writing and screenwriting to PhD level, and his research interests include genre writing, writing for digital audiences, and adaptation. Max's most recent novel, Sacrifice, the second of a proposed series of thriller novels and screen adaptations, featuring the blind hostage negotiator Ed Mallory, is due for publication in November 2013. Now, I'm not saying that's a great pitch. It just tells you what I do. It tells you my most recent piece of research, probably the most important piece of research being the most recent. There's a bit of a sell in there, you know. I'm saying when it's going to be published. I talk about my academic interests. I talk about the books that I've written. I give the titles. I might, I didn't need to give the titles, maybe. You know, maybe it would have been better if I hadn't give the titles. Maybe it's a bit long. I think that was about 92 words. But hopefully from that you get a sense of who I am and what I do. And it was written in a very sort of dry way. So, if we, what time have we got now? We're at 11.44. So if we go for like sort of 10 minutes, 10, 12, 13 minutes, something like that. Um, and... If we just try and write a very short, succinct paragraph in a compelling way, in a sort of universal way, without you know, technicalities and, and acronyms of what we do and our research generally. Go. <laughs> OK, so what I would normally do in a much sort of larger uh, time space uh, is sort of go back individually to each of your pitches and sort of deconstruct them and look at them and how they work and how they might be improved. Um, obviously, we don't really have the time for that. But I have to say, they were, in this sort of uniformity, they were very, very good. There were some great pitches there. I think you can sort of pick up from the audience reaction to various things. Um, your humour that you used was perfectly pitched and it made people kind of warm to it. Now, I'm not saying, as I said before, you know, using humour, using comedy is incredibly dangerous, incredibly dodgy thing to do, because, you know, unless you feel confident enough that you can deliver it, it's something that can make you look a little bit sort of trivial and make your research look trivial. So it's something that can, should only be used sparingly, but if it can be used effectively, it can really make you, as a person, and what you do, stand out from those around you. So that's something worth thinking about. Another thing that I think most, yeah? I was just going to ask that. I, I tried to use humour in a job interview. Right. It was a five-panel interview. Um, and one of the panel, I think, did find me really hilarious. But then I wasn't sure whether he was laughing with me or laughing with me. And I, I <laughs> yes. really didn't get, There's the get, danger. Get, the, get the job. And I think that, <laughs> so I, I, I do like bringing humour into things. But then I did kind of think, oh, maybe I should be a bit more it's, it's, it's dangerous. Yeah, I notice when I'm doing uh, admissions talks at Brunel, um, the, the lecture theatre where I do the admissions talks is where they filmed um, A Clockwork Orange, 
and where Malcolm McDowell in the famous Stanley Kubrick movie is actually tortured. So I come out with this little joke about, you know, torturing students and how we like to continue the, tra the tradition, you see. And most people get it and laugh and just think, oh, you know, he's just being silly. But occasionally, I've had just complete silence, kind of tumbleweed. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh God, why did I come out with that you know, terrible joke? So, you know, it is something that you've got to be very careful about. Um, I think the pitches generally, are, some of them were too long, a little bit too long. I think some of them went over 100 words. You, you became, you succumbed to Burroughs' word virus. Um, so maybe I think they're too long. I think that, you know, brevity is something that can be really, you know, have an impact in and of itself as well. So, you know, maybe cut back on those. Also, if you're using sort of emotion, where you're talking about when you, you what, what you want to do, maybe for your collaborators, uh, students, other academics, uh, in terms of, you know, obviously you don't want to sort of over-egg it and make, you look, make yourself look too sort of self-deprecating and sort of too sort of um, kind and caring and considerate. You know, you can go too far. Uh, but I think using emotional words can often be very useful. Um, also asking a question. A couple of you asked questions. So you ask a question and then you answer that question. Often that can be very effective in terms of um, getting across the fundamental problem of what your research is addressing and the answer that your research is trying to find. Because remember what I was saying earlier on about character and the nature of character and what it is about us deep within our sort of human psychology, that we love to see people overcome obstacles and difficulties and problems. So to actually put that, those issues up front can be useful if it's relevant to your specific type of research and, 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 the, and the work that you're sort of undertaking at any given time. Okay, so maybe that's something possibly, you know, you could talk about um, at another stage, the actual nature of these pitches that you've done. But what I hope you can take away from this is that coming up with a very short form sort of pricey if you like of what you do and trying to write it in as compelling a way as possible is something that is very very useful um, and it can form the basis of letters it can form the basis of a C CVs uh, website profiles something you can use on social media um, it's something that you, you know is a constantly it's like an ever-present but sort of constantly changing expression of who you are and what you do. And it's something that certainly as a writer and certainly as a novelist, you're always coming up with little biogs, little press releases when a book's released or, or a film is released or whatever. There's always, you know, the, the publicity people at the publishers or the film production company will always be looking for little interesting aspects of your life. So your, your personal biography, if you like, is constantly changing. And I think as academics, it's been very useful. Something I noticed at Brunel was when I first started there, was looking at the staff profiles. Just went on for pages and pages and pages. And people were talking about papers they'd written in the sort of, you know, mid-80s. You know, and, and sort of waxing lyrical about them. And it was like, nobody cares. You know, it, you don't want to hear that, but nobody cares. Um, and, you know, this is, this is something you need to find out what is the key to what you do, the essence to what you do, and the essence to what you are as a character. And if you can get that across in a short, punchy pitch, uh, or biog, or however you want to call it, I think it's a really useful thing to do. And always to have that there, as I say, that you can use in a variety of different sort of literature. Because what's happening now in terms of presentation of ourselves in academia is changing from the verbal to the visual. It's changing to video. And I've noticed this in the entertainment industry as well and how people are pitching projects. So, if you were to take your pitch that you've just delivered, you might want to consider the words, but you might also want to consider the, the way you've delivered it, okay? Because the chances are that in the next year or two, if somebody hasn't done it already, the chances are they may well have done it already, someone's going to point one of those at you and they're going to ask you to speak into it. So you're going to have to have a really well-written piece of work, a pitch about yourself, but you're also going to have to, to establish how you want to deliver that. 
And that is something that a lot of people you know, struggle with. They can be great writers, but they may not be great presenters. But it seems that within industry and within academia, we are being asked now to present ourselves within a sort of video environment. So you need to think about the tone in your personal message. How are you going to present yourself? Again, we've, you, know, you, may, you may want to try a slightly comedic tone. You might want to try a very dry, serious tone. But it's worth practicing. Most computers nowadays have webcams built into them. You can record yourself. You can practice with these things. And presenting yourself on video, as I say, it's going to be a, a tool that you're going to really need to sort of understand. I've noticed with funding bodies now, I've been putting together funding bids for an online web drama that I'm trying to produce at the moment. And we did a big project, um, I think it was the AHRC, and they asked for a video of us. Um, the, the team, the creative team, discussing the project. And we were horrified at the thought of this at first, you know, that we had to sort of stand up in front of a camera and talk about it. But actually, it became a very useful tool for us to actually kind of synthesize and work out and simplify the message of what we were trying to do so that we could present it. I think it needed to be three minutes. So, you know, in terms of this three-minute um, video that we had to produce. Something that's worth looking at is Kickstarter. Um, presumably most of you know about Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a uh, crowdfunding initiative that started in America a few years ago. And they claim that 40% of all the projects that are presented on Kickstarter end, actually end up getting funded, which is a, a sort of amazing statistic. But it's for people within the arts and creativity generally to get their projects funded. It might be a film, it might be a stage play, it might be a tour, it might be any number of creative endeavours. But it is a means for people to fund their projects. And all of these projects on the Kickstarter website, I think it's just kickstarter.com, are focused on the video. It's all about the video and they actually have video tutorials. So it's worth going on to Kickstarter to actually think about uh, how you might present a video of yourself and your research. Uh, and you'll see some really bad ones. You'll see some, I mean, comical ones, you know, that you know they're not going to get their money. But then it's always good, it's always worth looking at the section which says, you know, which is, covers the projects that have been funded, that have got their full funding. Because obviously whatever they've done has responded. It's sort of resonated with their, uh, the audience that they want to try and finance their project. And often it's the really simple ones. Often you get people who think, OK, we've got a three-minute video. We're trying to make a film here, or we're trying to make a documentary, or we're trying to, you know. So what we're going to do is we're going to get Final Cut Pro, and we're going to edit this, and we're going to create this really sort of amazing montage of, of images and ideas and concepts, and we're going to throw it all together and stick on a sort of, you know, portentous voiceover over the top. And they're often the ones that don't go anywhere. They're the ones that don't get funded because there's just too much information, too much sort of, uh, you know, visual information going on at any given time. Often the most effective videos are those of just one person talking to camera uh, and delivering the nature of what they do and what they are setting out to do and what they're hoping to achieve funding for in a simple and very basic way. So I do urge you to look at the Kickstarter model of, um, uh, of using video for, to, to further creative projects. Because as I say, it's quite funny as well. Some of the really bad ones are very comical. Um, so it's worth taking a look at that. Um, now, this has extended now to the entertainment industry. Okay? The Cannes Film Festival, which took place in May, uh, where all the film producers, most of the sort of leading film producers and directors and everybody involved with film converge on Cannes, as we know. And it always used to be that people would have rucksacks full of scripts that they would hand out. You know, 120-page, two-hour film scripts they would give out to producers. Do you want to fund my project? Uh, are you interested in, you know, collaborating or whatever? Here's the film. Okay? Or it might just be pieces of paper. This was always the way until the past two years where it's just people with iPads and laptops walking around with trailers of films that have not been made. Okay? 
And uh, my last book, Baptism, uh, we are making a feature film. We're trying to make a feature film. We're trying to raise the funds necessary to make that feature film. So what the director did, and he's a, he's a very sort of um, digitally aware young guy. Uh, he's, he's only been out of film school for a few years, uh, three or four years. Um, but he's really embraced the idea of creating a trailer and making a trailer as though you've made the film, as though it's, the film is a finished pro project, in the can, as the expression goes, and producing that trailer to there, then take to your potential producers, potential financiers, to show you that you can create something that is going to be, you know, that has high production values. The average film, you know, even this film, which is going to be, you know, in, in budgetary terms in relation to Hollywood or whatever, is very, very low budget. It's about two million quid, but it's still two million quid. So potential backers and producers want to be able to see that their money is safe with this person. It's going to be the same in the world of academia, I think, when people are asking for big, you know, chunks of money to pursue research. Those financiers and backers from both, you know, private and public funding bodies uh, want to know that you can do the work, that you're, you know, you're not going to sort of, you know, squander the money. And often it's the video that is the key. This is the key to the whole thing. Um, we've see how we're doing with time. So I'm just going to show you. It's quite violent. There's a little bit of profanity in it, for which I apologise. But I'm going to show you the video to Baptism. It is a thriller, and it's meant to be a very mainstream commercial movie. So if I can get the... Uh, which I can't. Oh, I can. Um, this is the trailer. Now remember, this film does not exist. Okay. <laughs> And this is the trailer to the film. So there you go. Uh, it's a, clearly a very straightforward genre thriller. Um, and, but as I say, no film actually exists. That has been written and produced and sort of thrown together um, about, it's expensive, because some of those trailers are very, they're made uh, on a shoestring. I mean, that was about £10,000, probably. But even so, you know, they had to find a train carriage in an old, strange old museum up in Walthamstow, the Pump House Museum. We got actors, it, it was all done over one weekend, and the actors did it for free, pretty much, in the hope that they would then get parts in the feature film. There's a whole sort of business model now that's, that's springing up around these videos, because that's how people... Um, to finance their projects is through showing what they can do in a very short form sense. So it's that sort of short form sense which is hopefully going to raise funding and awareness for a longer form um, project. That's also already filtered down to student theatre production. Yes. For which I think it's amazing that yeah. absolutely nothing yeah. people's time in Oxford there'll be a trailer for yes. a that's right. And trailers for books now. Very, very popular now, trailers for books. And I think what happens in the entertainment industry and in sort of popular publishing and sort of fiction publishing will filter through into academia very much so that people will, uh, you know, there will be trailers for something that you would never have ever thought a few years ago. You would actually create a trailer for. It doesn't feel like an entertainment project. And obviously that film is, you know, that's, that's going to be a, hopefully a sort of fairly m mainstream commercial uh, thriller movie. But even so, I think there's going to be, you know, the, the whole notion of video trailers and presentations is going to be absolutely crucial um, across the board. So, so be aware of that. Um, right, in the last few minutes um, available to me, um, I was just going to sort of run through in terms of writing uh, the whole nature of sort of digital technology very, very quickly and how it's sort of... Um, changed in, 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 you know, anecdotally in terms of, of what I do. I remember in 2009, I was talking to uh, the head of fiction um, for Orion Publishing, who, was, who published my first two books. And this was, yeah, two th 2009, so four years ago. Uh, and I said, you know, what about e-publishing? And he said, oh, no, e-publishing, it's, it's, it's never going to happen. <laughs> right? So, you know, literally two years later, 
and it was sort of, tw I think, 20% of the market. I think this year it's like something like 40% of the market. And it, it, not long, and it'll, it'll, it'll actually become the, the majority sort of, uh, you know, distribution method um, for books. So obviously, you know, as writers and, and people who present... Oh, I think probably on Amazon, yeah, Amazon yeah. I think they are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Amazon are taking over the world. Quite scary. <laughs> they really are scary. Um, the whole nature of content on demand is changing. Uh, I don't know if anybody watched the Ben Wheatley movie that was on, ch on Film 4 last Friday night, but it was, um, a, it was a new distribution model. I mean, it has been done a couple of times before, but it was released simultaneously on DVD, on digital download, and on Film 4, this film, exactly the same time throughout the world. So this whole nature of content and on demand is changing the face of distribution methods, both for entertainment and for, you know, a variety of different projects. Digital drama, this is something I'm very interested in at the moment. I, I wrote and co-produced a pilot episode of a digital drama that we were trying to get off the ground at Brunel University. A couple of years ago, I used to work with the uh, actor-comedian Rick Mail, and he came along, did me a favour, starred in this thing. And it was a really important lesson for me because we created this digital drama. And everybody thinks that digital drama, the, the, the beauty of digital drama is its interactivity. Okay? People can you know, give you ideas and give you storyline ideas and blah, blah, blah. All this sort of stuff. It's actually incredibly difficult to make anything interactive work. And actually to get across the concept of interactivity to a potential audience. Most audiences see it as a sort of passive experience. You experience, you watch something, you experience, you are, experience it, you either respond to it emotionally or you don't. But when you're being asked to contribute to this story, that's all well and good. But the logistics of that, a lot of people don't want that. And the logistics for a producer are a nightmare. Because how are you going to sift through these ideas? How are you going to find the good ideas? And script development takes a long time. And we realized once we'd spent a you know, goodly sum of money and um, really spent a lot of hard work and, and effort to create this digital drama, that actually the logistics of producing it were a nightmare. It was almost impossible to do. Because if we had successfully uh, enlisted this enormous amount of input from this, from this audience and the potential audience, we would have needed a huge infrastructure to have actually serviced all those ideas, found out what were the good ideas, developed those ideas, and actually workshopped them and you know, sort of introduced them into the storyline. It would have been incredibly difficult. Now, somebody's going to come along and they're going to do it. Somebody who's got deep pockets, maybe one of the existing broadcasters, maybe a big film company, they're going to come along and do it. Yeah. But somebody's going to do it. Out there, there is... Um, that was the project I worked on. The um, Soapopolis was the project that I worked on. But out there somewhere, there is a Citizen Kane of interactive web drama waiting to be made. Somebody's going to come along and do it. Somebody's going to suss it out. But I actually think possibly the way that it's going to go is that digital games, which is, have just overcome the, the international film industry in terms of revenue and, uh, and, and turnover, games and drama are, this is me sort of, you know, prophesying the future. Games and drama are going to come together, okay? And I think therein will lie the interactivity that the current web dramas don't, or don't know quite know how to harness. And I'm working on a digital game at the moment, which is, uh, and I'm not allowed to talk about it, unfortunately, because I've had to sign loads of various contracts, and I'll sue me if I do. But a lot of it is to do with interactivity, and it's a lot of to do with people not just playing the game, but actually de designing the environment in which they play the game. So actually designing the levels. And that's only one step away from actually designing, and, and they're already designing the what the characters wear and what they look like, but it's only one step away from actually designing the characters. Second Life, yeah, I guess. Well, I, I think we. I think it um, will, yeah. Our yeah. Of reading experience are massively out dated. 
creative. Yeah. And I think I think reading and film watching and gameplay are all going to fuse. So but I'm this is totally it. People were talking about enhanced books, didn't they? And yeah. so that you'd read this book and then there'd be, you know, there's all sorts of videos you can link into and all this sort of stuff. And the publishing industry temporarily have gone a bit cold on it for whatever reason. Maybe they just couldn't make enough money out of it, which is probably the reason. Um, but that's the way it will go. And I think, I think these different sorts of models of entertainment, uh, the idea of games, the idea of sort of social media, the, the idea of you know, feature films, dramas, and reading, tra traditional reading, there is gonna be a huge you know, merging of all these things. And we're gonna look back in years to come and it'll seem very quaint that we had these separate units of entertainment uh, and how they had very, very specific formats. You know, a feature film has to be between 90 minutes to a two hours long and it has to be in three act structure and it has to have a plot point at the end of the first act and all this sort of stuff is gonna seem very, very quaint that we'd sort of locked ourselves into these very sort of uh, formulaic and formal kind of um, uh, sort of components, if you like, and constructions. So I think, that's the way it's going to go, how digital audiences are going to expect different things from their entertainment. And I think that's how it's going to sort of change in the future. Um, but just on a sort of, on a kind of smaller level in terms of your own writing and your own sort of academic practice, um, I guess, you know, I, th I think we need to really consider how we present ourselves. So, because there is so much going on, I've put a Tower of Babel here down at the bottom. Um, you know, the internet and digital technology and digital communication is this massive explosion of information, both in sort of entertainment and, and all different academia and all different forms. And I think it's very easy for things to get lost uh, and be missed. So I think the key to making yourself heard is obviously to have good ideas, good projects, good research, but almost as equally important is presenting that. And, and writing it well, and thinking of you yourself as a character in a sort of enormous worldwide kind of drama, and thinking of what makes you and your work unique, and how you can make yourself heard above all the other babble that is going on uh, in, in the sort of digital realm. And that's me done. If anybody's got any questions? <laughs>